Uh, repeat after me, love, love. Reputation. reputation, reconciliation, reconciliation. Rescue. rescue, and resurrection. Um, if you're new, and I see a couple new faces, uh, we've been going through the core values of Spark. This is week 19 of Spark, if you can believe that. We started back in October, and uh, with just a passion and a vision for um, a group of people to gather together and start something new. Um, and what tonight is going to be is a little bit on that part. Christianity, for uh, the vast majority of us, if not all of us, is a very heartfelt, emotional thing. When Jesus comes and saves your life and when you get saved or when you have a conversion experience or when you're born again or whatever language it is that you've used to describe your relationship with Jesus, there's something very powerful and emotional that happens to you. There's something very deep and, and spiritual that happens to your soul. And you get connected to something and someone beyond just yourself in brand new ways when that happens. And Part of what we've been doing over the last couple weeks, over the last 19 weeks of Spark, is to take the full encompassing nature of humanity, which is both the emotion, the heart, as well as the intellect, the mind, the thinking, the thoughts, and to pull it all together into what we call our core values. And the core values are things that drive us and they inform everything of what we do. And those words that you just said form the core values. Tonight, we're going to finish up the very last core value, which is resurrection. And we're going to focus in a little bit on the intellectual side of things. And we'll share with you why that's important. And hopefully it will empower and inspire you in your walk in faith, not just emotionally, but also intellectually. So um, I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to allow you guys to ask some questions at the end. And if you would like to text me, that's my cell phone number. You are welcome to send me a text and I'll keep my phone here at the very end if you want to ask anonymously, because we're going to go through some stuff that is of a questioning and inquiry nature. So if you're interested, there's no obligation, of course. Please feel free to text questions, and I'll try to answer those at the end of my message. Uh, we will also take them floor if you're interested. Now, one of the things that's important, one of the things I want to make sure that I say is we at Spark, and you can share this with anybody and everybody, welcome the questions. And if you have any question about anything... This is a safe place for you to say, hey, wait a second, I'm not quite so sure about X. Or, you know, I'm really struggling with this. Um, how can we really know? And one of the things that is not a core value, but a central value to Spark is a very um, safe environment in which you can ask any question. And I love the diversity that we have in our community. We have people who are on varying journeys of this thing called being a Christian or this thing called following Jesus. And wherever you are on that journey, this is a safe place where you can ask any of those questions. So tonight, hopefully, we'll provoke some questions in addition. And if you feel um, interested and move to do that. First thing, when we talk about resurrection, tonight um, we're going to get into giving you the evidences for the historical resurrection of Jesus. Now, Easter is right around the corner. And again, there's a wonderful celebration that happens during this season and on Easter, the celebration of Jesus rising from the dead. And it means something very deep means something very personal. It means something very spiritually powerful to those of us who are in relationship with Jesus. What we're going to do tonight 
is answer some questions or address some questions regarding the skepticism around this claim that Christianity has. That 2,000 years ago, almost, a man died and was raised to new life supernaturally by God in space and time. And the reason why this is important for us to ground ourselves in is because if you were to say things like that or to talk about miracles or to suggest that God intervenes into this history, into time and space, in maybe your um, places of work, at places of school, in your social circles, you might get that weird look of like, oh, you're one of those people. And what we'd like to do is give you some intellectual grounding where you can firmly believe emotionally that God works tremendous miracles in this world and give you some good ground intellectually for, those, for the reasons for why we believe this. Does that make sense? That's where we're going tonight. The first thing that we have to say then is what resurrection is not. When we use this word resurrection, a lot of people try to redefine this word so that they can either tone it down or tame it down or make it more palatable for understanding this really radical claim of a miraculous thing that happened. Number one, resurrection is not resuscitation. It is not the idea that somehow Jesus had passed out and then somehow been revived. Sometimes this is called revivalism. Um, had sometimes uh, that Jesus had somehow passed, just kind of passed out a little bit and then revived and then came out of the tomb, unwrapped himself, moved the stone, showed up to people and said, hey. So the first thing you need to know is that resurrection is not resuscitation. And Danielle talked a little bit about what the expectation of resurrection was throughout history in the Jewish uh, Second Temple period right before Jesus and even during that time of Jesus. And what we want to make clear is that if there are other people, um, and there are going to be those claims, that the claim that Christianity makes that resurrection, a man rising from the dead, that's not really rising from the dead. There's some sort of medical explanation for how he might have passed out or those different types of things. There's actually a name for this theory that we'll get to in a little bit called the swoon theory. There are some that actually claim that resurrection is akin to a reincarnation, that the spirit of Jesus went into the grave, but then rose in a different body. And there's all sorts of different kind of tricky little ways in which people try to make that particular claim. But what we're talking about and what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is not the claim of reincarnation. Perhaps the most important and most popular claim regarding the resurrection is this word metaphor. And this is the one that is most widely talked about. You might have heard this because it's on the news and people write about this popularly, that the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen, but it was a metaphor for us coming to new life, for us coming to a whole new spiritual awakening. And we use the word resurrection to just simply be a metaphor for that experience. Well, what we're going to say, and this is a very bold claim, is that resurrection isn't any of those things, according to the scriptures, according to the Bible, and according to history. What resurrection is, is the physical, bodily rising of Jesus from the dead. 
And again, when we say this as Christians, it can be sometimes a barrier to relationships or conversation because now some people will categorize you in that category. And so what I'd like to do tonight is give you some handholds for how to deal with this. The reason why this is a core value with Spark is because it's a core value to Paul. It's a core value to Matthew all the way through Revelation. It's a core value to the central message of this book. It is the capstone and cornerstone of both this church and every other Christian church that exists on the face of the planet. It is the very central idea in the Christian faith. It's the thing that holds everything together. And Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians that if this event did not happen, then forget it. Forget it all. What are we doing? Might as well just go play jazz or soccer or eat bonbons or whatever it is that you want to do. Whatever it is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is what he calls futile. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 because what he writes in here is absolutely central and foundational and actually kind of awesome. And we're going to share with you why. Now, verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. Now, here's where it gets very, very important to pay attention to what kind of argument Paul is making here in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace to me, um, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, in fact, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll end our reading there. There's huge chunks and pieces in there. A couple things that I just simply want to highlight. The claim of Christianity from 1 Corinthians 15 is that the resurrection is an historical claim. This is real space, real time, real flesh, real bones, real eyes, real witnesses, real touching of the body. And so what's so wonderful about this is in some critics or critiques of Christianity or even some other religions, there's this tendency to think of certain religions or certain faiths as being very esoteric. And by esoteric, I just simply means, well, that's your personal experience or that's your way of seeing things or this is just your personal spiritual journey and this is something that, that you like to do but it's not good for the rest of us. This is your way but it's not my way. That's your religion. That's your faith. This isn't my faith. But the claim of Christianity isn't that. It's not that we just believe that Jesus was raised. It's that he was raised. And that this took place in real time, in real history, in a real location. And we can mark it. And we can, therefore, apply all of the historical methods that we use to research anything through history to ask the question, is this claim a viable claim? Does it have merit? So the first thing that we take away and we understand is that the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is an historical one. And so for those of you who might have studied history at Stanford or Santa Clara or done any of the historiographical approaches to anything in history, whether it be Alexander the Great or whether it be Neop uh, Neapolitan, Napoleon, Neapolitan. Don't know where my mind is. Napoleon or, or any of those people or even Washington, you know, any people in history, whatever methods we use to seek out and search out the truth of those people, we can do the same thing with Christianity. That's the claim. Verses three and four. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died. And, and, and verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared. He's making very clear historical claims. Number two, the Christian faith is therefore verifiable. If you notice, Paul says, what I received, which means that some people are sharing with him and he is now passing on to others, very much like sharing testimony or sharing a witness to somebody else. And he also says that he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to the 500. He makes these claims, he talks about these people and these appearances as if to say, if you don't believe my testimony, me telling it to you right now, guess what? There's 500 people you can go talk to. In other words, don't just take my word for it. This claim that Jesus rose from the dead is actually a verifiable one. You can go check it out for yourself. You can do your own research and your, your own history. You can actually go to the tomb. We all know where that is. Go check it out. You know Cephas, they're still alive. Some people have actually passed away, fallen asleep, but there's 500 people that are still alive. You can go check this out. So this is historical. It's verifiable. And one of my favorite points, it's disprovable. Now, I know this might sound a little weird, but hold on here for just a second. When you are doing historical or even scientific inquiry, 
how do you know you've come to a particular truth? How do you know you've come to a conclusion that has merit? How do you know that you've come to something that you can trust as being accurate and viable? In scientific and historical research, and and many of you know this far better than I do, you have to be able to say, well, it would be false if. If I found data or information in this category, then I can say that my claim is false. In other words, when Paul says that you can go check this out and you can prove or disprove it, he's actually providing for us a way out which is an extremely bold thing to do if he wasn't telling the truth. He's providing all of us a way out of this. Listen, check it out. If it doesn't match up, we can all go home. And by providing a way out, he's actually giving credence. He's giving a lot of substantive, he's giving substantiation to his claim. So by giving the possibility that it is disprovable, he's entering fully into you being able to research it. And he has such faith and, of course, trust that this is so true that it doesn't matter. You can go check out anything and everything. So this is really, really central. Um, In debates that you might find online and YouTube, you will hear people uh, say constantly to Christians, well, How would you know it's not true? That's one of the arguments against people of faith. Well, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us a way out. And if you find data there that it disproves it, then we can all go home. But I think because of the fact he does that, it shows just how confident he is in the truth, how confident he is around the witness that has been passed down to him, and how confident he is in the fact of the matter. And lastly... This claim is that it's logical. In verse 17, we read, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The word for futile there is the word, the Greek word kinos, and it means useless or empty or senseless. In other words, this claim that Jesus rise, raised from the dead, was raised from the dead, logically therefore concludes that we are followers of, of the way followers of Jesus, there is a logical connection between this historical event and the attitude, the actions, and the movement of the Christian faith. And so we can, through all four of these things, apply all of the tools of history, all the tools of logic, all the tools of verification, we can apply all of those things to the resurrection of Jesus. And again, this does not take away from the reality that the resurrection of Jesus can be very spiritual and very meaningful to each and every one of us in your your way and how you follow Jesus. It's very moving to know that Jesus has overcome death. It's very moving to realize that Jesus has overcome sin. These are things that deeply inform our faith. But you can also stand assured that our faith is deeply grounded in history, in logic, and in verification. Easter's coming, and... Every time Easter comes around, TV shows and popular uh, production agencies love to, shall we say, poke the bear or come up with things that like to provoke people into really questioning the things that we have. 
things that we believe, the things that we're convicted about. And uh, I know it's, it's hard for you guys to see some of this because some of you, like when you see Discovery Channel, you're like, ooh, Shark Week. And then, you know, you have this kind of visceral reaction or like Mythbusters, <laughs> you know. So the History Channel and Discovery Channel and other places like that are attempting to do pr- good programming and good TV. And I guess what I wanted to share with you is this. As Easter is coming around and as we start to have conversations around the dinner table and around the workplace about the resurrection of Jesus and about how some people are going to say things that are uh, possibly going to be demeaning or possibly going to be dismissive of you regarding your belief in this. Because we're historical, because we're verifiable, because we can be disproved, because it's logical, what I would encourage you and all of us is welcome it. We do not have to be defensive. If people make a claim or make some sort of logical assertion about how this can or should not be true, when we recognize that what Paul is doing is setting up a systematic argument for the validity of the resurrection, we should do the same. We should welcome the conversation. We have nothing to fear. So my encouragement to you is next time you turn the channel or next time you have a conversation with somebody and things start to go and they start to say things that are demeaning or things on TV start to come and they start to be a little uncertain or uh, start to feel like attacking or whatever, take heart. You don't have to be afraid of any of that. All of their claims, guess what? Also have to match up to the same historiography, the same verification, the same process. We're all on the same level playing field in that particular sense. And we ought to embrace this challenge. Bring it on. We've got nothing to hide. Paul puts it right out there. We've got nothing to hide. You can check it out. So let's take a look. I'm going to give you four things. There are many evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to boil them down to four. And once you have these four, you can go on the internet and you can search all day long and find up to umpteen other evidences for the resurrection. These are the four that I think are the most grounded. And some scholars even suggest that these are the four that are completely indisputed. In other words, even in what we might call liberal or non-believing scholastic worlds, Even liberal scholars who don't believe in miracles or don't believe in, you know, those kinds of things would hold that these are historical facts that we have to contend with. Number one, Jesus died and was buried. Number two, the tomb was found empty on the third day. Number three, Jesus physically appeared to his disciples. And note that word physically appeared. And number four, the origin of the Christian faith the origin of the Christian faith. Number one, Jesus died and was buried. Number two, the tomb was found empty. Number three, Jesus physically appeared to his disciples. And number four, the origin of the Christian faith. Number one, it is amazing that some people still continue to suggest that Jesus swooned. Now, the idea that Romans actually had a massive murderous machine through crucifixion but somehow missed it on Jesus is again stretching credibility. In addition to that, if Jesus did swoon and he passed out and then somehow was revived and he was mummified, well, he wasn't mummified, but he was wrapped in grave clothes and then the huge stone, think of the trial, the whipping, the scourging, the crucifixion, 
the blood loss, and then just go to the American Medical Association and ask yourself the question, what is even physically possible after you've gone through that kind of brutal murder? So, number one, it's an insult to the Romans that they didn't know what they were doing when it comes to crucifixion, and that just doesn't seem historically viable. And number two, even if Jesus did perform some sort of David Blaine experiment coming out of the tomb, like, aha, here I am, after all the medical stuff that was going on, and he appears to his disciples, his disciples aren't going to be excited about Jesus coming back. They're going to say, dude, you need a doctor. We've got to get you some help. So what's going on with Jesus' death and burial? is one of the most solid things that we can say in history. Romans knew how to kill. Jews knew what dead people were like. This isn't mystery. This is a picture of uh, one of our archaeological artifacts. Of uh, You can see the nail driven right through the heel bone of a crucifixion, so it's, it's pretty brutal. There are three kinds of tombs in the ancient world. One is called a niche tomb or a kohim tomb, where they would uh, stick the bodies into these little niches. The second one is called an arcosoli, uh, arcosolia uh, tomb, which, and many of you might have seen these in pictures of ancient catacombs where there's a little ark and there's a little bench there. And the third, which seems to be the most likely for Jesus, is a bench tomb, where there was some uh, tomb dug out of the stone, uh, out of the rock, and then benches that were set there for him. Uh, to be laid upon. Number one, Jesus died and he was buried in a tomb, uh, uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Number two, and this is where we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28. Number two, the tomb was found empty. This, amazingly, happens to be one of the first objections that we find even in your Bible. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 includes this little argument. And I love, see, this is what I love. I love that the Bible includes this argument. Again, it is a statement of its historical verification. Verse 11, chapter 28, verse 11 of Matthew. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Notice that. The guards who were there are now reporting what had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders, uh, had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while they, while we were asleep. If this report, report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Verse 15. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And I love this line. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, there's a couple things going on here. A whole bunch of things actually going on here. They're trying to argue something against what it is that's happening. But notice, even in that story, the only reason why that story can be true is what? If the tomb was actually empty. So, number one, Jesus died and was buried. Number two, the tomb was found empty. And even the chief priests and the soldiers and the guards there are trying to figure out what happened. They're going to claim that the disciples stole the body. And if they're going to make that claim, then it's very, very clear that the statement is saying, well, therefore, the tomb must have been empty. So from every witness that we have, both from the disciples, uh, the women who showed up there, the chief priests, and the soldiers, the tomb was empty. 
Number three, Jesus physically appeared to his disciples. Here's a picture of uh, Thomas. Please understand, the claim of Christianity is not that the disciples had visions of Jesus or that they had hallucinations of Jesus. There's a couple arguments to, uh, around this. Number one, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Appeared to Cephas, appeared to me, and then to the 500. And there's some debate in this, but the idea of massive amounts of people having hallucinations such as this does not, to, does not seem to be a very viable option when it comes to mass hallucinations. Number two, the Doubting Thomas story illustrates that even he and the other disciples were even checking themselves, even if they thought they were having hallucinations. This is a physical, I will not believe until I put my fingers in his side and touch the wounds. So the claim in the scriptures is not that they were having hallucinations, not that they were having visions, not that they were somehow um, frenzied into believing something. This is a verifiable, physical, tangible, I can touch this, I can see this. There was expectation that there was a resurrection but it was not the expectation that it was going to happen to one man in this place in this time. And if you um, missed Daniel's talk from last week, we'll make sure we'll get that up on the line. Last, the origin of the Christian faith. This is perhaps one of the central finalizing arguments for the historical resurrection of Jesus. If there were any other explanation for what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday if the disciples stole the body, then that turns them into liars and it turns them into deceivers. And given the fact that all of them went to their deaths to, according to this claim that they believed, that doesn't make any sense. We know that people will die for something that they really sincerely believe is true. But we know, also know that people don't die for what they know to be false. So if the disciples stole the body, that just doesn't make any sense. Hallucinations don't make sense. There are all the other explanations. The swoon theory that we talked about doesn't make sense. What makes sense is this. When Jesus died, the disciples scattered. The movement is over. The Messiah has been crucified. In fact, he's not even the Messiah. Because Messiahs don't die. Or at least they don't die and then just leave us here. And so we see evidence in the scriptures that once Jesus died... It's done. The movement is over. And lying, if it was a stolen body, does not match up to the character and the high morality of the disciples and the teachings of Jesus. What only makes sense is if the disciples truly, sincerely believed that they had physically encountered the risen Christ, so much so that it had transformed them 180 degrees from completely dismissing the movement to being fully committed to it, even unto their deaths. So, you want to talk about how did this Christian movement and the Christian faith emerge? If Jesus had stayed in the, do in the tomb, and if Jesus had stayed dead, the movement would have been over. In fact, we have examples of that throughout Jewish history, where people who claim to be Messiah figures rise up, they begin to revolt, they begin to lead people, and then they die, and the movement is over. 
But something happened in the first century that every scholar who studies this has to contend with. Why in the world did this movement, after a dead Jesus, remember point one, after a dead Jesus, why did this movement somehow all of a sudden launch into history and transform the world? That is a contentious issue that you have to deal with. And the most logical, the most historically verifiable reason is that Jesus rose from the dead, that God raised him from the dead, that these disciples had encounters with Jesus, and they believed sincerely that God had raised him, that he was resurrected. So here are your four things. Jesus died and was buried. The tomb was found empty. Jesus physically appeared to his disciples and the origin of the Christian faith. And I, again, this is a, a very short message for a teaching for tonight. Write these down. You can do a ton of research. There's tons of books and materials out there for you to spend a lot of time researching this. All I want to share with you is that for us and for Spark, the reason why this is a core central value is because it's the core central piece of the Christian faith and the Christian movement. It is central to everything we are and everything that we believe. It in some ways summarizes all, all of what we've been doing and all of the values of who we are. And this stuff matters. We are on good historical and evidentiary bounds, grounds with this claim. This happened in real space and time, which means that all of these values and all of our movements and all of the ways in which we follow Jesus and every time we obey him and every time we seek to do his will in this world, it's not just something that happens in here because it's a personal esoteric experience. The resurrection also empowers us and inspires us to say, just like Jesus rose physically from the grave in history, in space and in time, so love must exemplify itself in history, in space, and in time. And reconciliation must exemplify itself in history, and in space, and in time. What we do as a church, what we do as followers of Jesus, is real, in the very realist sense of the word real. I don't even know how to, what other language can we put to that? This is very, very real, very, very tangible. If Jesus is raised from the dead... That also gives us a tremendous hope for the future. Again, this is the origin of the Christian faith. That if Jesus rose from the dead, that is a verification of the things that he taught about, the verification of the things and the hopes and the prophecies and the history of what was coming and what is to come. And so since we have good evidence and since we can say Jesus rose from the dead, we can be very, very confident and have tremendous hope about what is coming in the future which also empowers us to live out this resurrection right here, right now, because it is true. When we talk about resurrection, and we're going to share some stories next week. I'm super excited about next week summing up the values and sharing some stories for how this works. We're talking about how if this is true, since this is true, it can empower us right now. The same power of God that rose Jesus from the dead is, guess what? In every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus. Oh, ah, do you just get chills just thinking about that? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives here. Which means all of those things that we talked about, rescue and reconciliation and injustice, Injustice, abuse, all that stuff, all the death that happens right here, right now between the trees, all of that 
can all, the truth of the resurrection can give us power to deal with all of that and to bring resurrection to each and every one of those things right here and right now. And it empowers us to engage with real life. This is something Danielle said in her message last week that I just thought was so powerful, talking about a series of disappointments. And the pastoral note for us is, um, you know, this was a very heady, intellectual, thinking, cognitive kind of a message. But again, we're tying these two together. Some of you may have walked into this place or are listening to this message and you kind of feel you're in the middle of or coming to the end of a series of disappointments in your life. Things that don't work out. Hopes that have been disappointments. Expectations that have turned out to be tragedies. Relationships that were supposed to be loving have turned into hate or apathy. And in your life, whether it's a job, whether it's love, uh, whether it's children, uh, whether it's your own personal insecurities in your life, you might, have, you might be thinking that there's a series of disappointments that happen in life. And the reason why resurrection is such a central value to us is because that's exactly what happened to the disciples. I expect Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, and guess what? We're taking over. Palm branches, Hosanna, Lord save us. All right, Jesus is here. I got my sword. And if I don't, I'm going to go buy two of them. Put away your sword for those who live by the sword, die by the sword, Peter. This is not why I've come. Well, well, okay, well, I will never, I will never deny you. I will be with you to the end, whatever it is that you're moving. Maybe he's doing something different. I'll tell you the truth that before the cock crows three times, you will deny me three times. And, and, and when you read this story, this doesn't sound like a movement of everything working out exactly the way it's supposed to be. It sounds like a series of disappointments. It sounds like things not working out with the expectations. You know, d- the disciples say things like, hey, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and we're going to destroy these people? Yeah, because we got Jesus on our side. Yeah, buddy Jesus happening right here. Lightning. Okay, we're ready to rock and roll. And he's, Jesus, every turn is like, no, that's not it. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what I've come for. So if you're here and you feel like you've experienced a series of disappointments, this is a place that believes in resurrection. That all of those disappointments, no matter where you are in that journey, there is a resurrection that can happen and the resurrection power that changes and transforms everything about who we are. Everything about who we are. Everything about what we do and every disappointment in life. So, does anybody have any? There are three? I didn't see. Oh, oh, the top three. Okay, the questions. Um, I didn't understand disprovable. Can you show where that is in 1 Corinthians? Work through it, thanks. 1 Corinthians, real quick. Uh, There's a passage there in chapter 15, starting in verse 12, where he uses the reverse argument. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And verse 13 is kind of the turning point in this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's the disprovable. He's tying those two together. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And the inverse of that, therefore, is also true. If Christ has not been raised, then there is no resurrection. Um, which he says in verse 14, and our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 
The best way I understand disprovable, I will give you an example from a very, because it's the first one that comes to mind, so I I apologize, it can be a very controversial subject. I read a book um, not too long ago entitled Why Evolution is True by by Jerry Coyne. I know this is a very controversial uh, topic, but it's the first one that comes to mind. In the theory of evolution, Jerry Coyne, as well as other evolutionary biologists, will tell you, if we find fossils in this particular strata, that is a piece of data that will tell us that this theory that we've been currently working with is wrong. That's what they mean by disprovable, or that's kind of the premise of disprovability. That if we can find a piece of data that is contrary to the theory that we're working with, then we must dismiss the theory because it's wrong because we have other data to support something different. So Jerry Coyne will do that with evolutionary biology. You'll do that in science. You'll do that in history. If we happen to find a particular evidence that says this, then the theory that we've been working on is wrong. You can do this in a court of law. We have a theory that so-and-so murdered so-and-so. And every single piece of evidence might look for that, except if we happen to find DNA evidence that proves otherwise. That is a claim that can be disproved. And the reason why that's so powerful, in my opinion, as well as others who have written about this, is because Paul is suggesting that this claim of Jesus rising from the dead falls into that exact same category. It's not something that you just believe just to believe it. It's something that you can go research. It's something that you can disprove. I hope that's helpful. I'm not a philosopher, so I'm doing my best here. Oh, they were all around, they were, all those questions were on the same kind of a thing. <laughs> Sorry, so apparently I was, which is why I'm not a philosopher, so. Are there contemporaneous um, or contemporary non-biblical accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection? There are uh, contemporary writings, non-biblical, regarding the movement of the Christian faith and the claims of the Christian faith. Thallus, who I believe is first century Roman historian, and somebody's going to have to Google that and double check me on that. And I love it. Everybody's got Thallus, T-H-A-L-L-U-S. Thallus has written about a darkness that has come over the earth that seems to coincide with the time of Jesus as well as an earthquake. That is not a claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but some of that data some Christian historians use to say, see, there's some historical things going on there. Josephus mentions um, Jesus twice in his writings. Um, The early church fathers obviously write about that. Um, Suetonius and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger are also other ancient historians that write about the movement of Jesus and about specifically these Christians and what it is that they're doing and what it is that they're claiming and how it is that they're living and they're practicing. So while it may not necessarily be evidence that Jesus rose from the dead in the same way that we've done through the scriptures, we do have other ancient historians that give credence to the movement and the origin of the Christian faith, or at least the movement of the Christian faith, very, very, very early on. I don't have that all memorized. I would recommend Bart Ehrman's book, Why uh, Did Jesus Exist? 
which is a fascinating title. The answer is yes, by the way. And, and Bart Ehrman is an agnostic. He, he is not a theist. He's not a Christian. He's an agnostic. And he goes through all the historical evidences for Jesus that include some of these writings that suggest the early Christian movement has historical credence. Okay, last question, maybe we'll. We know that other faiths grew exponentially that we believe are not in full truth, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. How then can we use the growth origin of Christianity and a confidence that it was true? Fantastic question. I love this question. Here's the difference. The claim of Islam, Buddhism, and Islam. Islam? Did I just say that? The claim of these other religions is not a historical claim in the same way that the Christian claim is. Um, If you take a look at the origin of Buddhism, the beginnings of Buddhism, Gautama Buddha basically is struggling with the idea of Hinduism and the kind of the multiplicity of gods and fundamentally wrestling with what is this issue of pain and suffering and how shall we deal with it? And he essentially develops a philosophy and a religion around pain, suffering, and evil is essentially an illusion. And you must, through your uh, devotion and through meditation and through religious practices, arise to a whole new level of consciousness. You all know this as nirvana in which to escape that. So Buddhism is not based upon historical, a, an historical event in, this, in the same way. Now, Islam has some history to it. Uh, with Muhammad in the 6th century. And there's all sorts of complicated history. Um, Some of it is violent. Some of it has tensions between Judaism and Christianity. And some of it is Muhammad trying to find his way in the path of Middle Eastern religions and the flourishing of Judaism and Christianity and and trying trying to figure out what his calling is and his visions are. But nowhere in that is the claim or a historical claim that... Um, something of like Jesus' resurrection happened. There is a claim within Islam uh, that Muhammad, you know, went up to heaven on his horse on the, uh, you know, at the Dome of the Rock. But again, all of that, if that is a historical claim, is something that we can do history with. And it's w- with, with being respectful, because this is an apologetics talk per se. With being respectful, we don't have the same historical credibility for all of those other things. So, yes, there are other religions and there are other philosophies and there are other movements that have happened throughout history. The reason why the Christian claim about the, and the origin of the Christian claim is so, such a central and important one is because the shift from the disciples from being completely, we're, we're done with the movement within the context of Second Temple Judaism and First Century Judaism doesn't make sense outside of the resurrection. And that's the key thing. The other movements can make sense logically, philosophically, sociologically for their emergence without an historical event. The Christian movement without the historical event doesn't make sense. And that's the key. Um, Thank you for your questions. They're fantastic and they're wonderful. And I hope it's now given us all food for thought and there's going to be a flurry of questions from that. Lord, thank you for allowing us to do some heavy lifting tonight and stretch our brains and our minds. Um, God, I pray ultimately that we would take heart in our soul and our mind in the fact that you are in this history in real space and time. Help us to grapple and and reel and deal with all the questions that still go around. But ultimately, God, we trust that you are true, that this is true, And if we continually pursue the truth, we will run into you every single time. 
And as this resurrection has come into space and time and history, God, may every single one of us in this place and beyond begin the journey of experiencing and realizing that resurrection here and now in real space and time. God, if there's anyone here who's been struggling or journeying with a series of disappointments in their life, God, would you just meet them? Would we grab hold of the fact that you've paid for our sins and raised us up from the dead as well? And be with us as we continually journey and wrestle with you. In your name.